justify. Crucify is a translation of the Greek word straw, which means literally to fix or to attach to a cross. Now that seems pretty straightforward. And that's so obvious that we might even think we don't need to define it. I mean, we know what crucifixion is, at least in theory, we do. In fact, I thought one of the interesting things about the reading in the book this week, those of you who uh, typically read the sections in the book, is that if you noticed, it didn't really talk about crucifixion per se. It talked all around it. It talked about its meaning. It talked about its significance. All important stuff, vitally important stuff, don't get me wrong. But we've been wrestling with that sort of stuff, the meaning, the significance of the crucifixion for weeks now. Atonement, redemption, propitiation, justification, all of those words have to do with trying to wrap our heads around just what Jesus' death means. Instead, I think we need to spend some time tonight thinking about what crucify actually means. I worry that there's a a real danger for us of domesticating, of forgetting or maybe never even really knowing, never really understanding in the first place why the idea of a crucified Messiah was such a scandal in the first century world to the point that the Apostle Paul writes about it, 1 Corinthians chapter 1. He expands on this in great detail, talks about how it's the wisdom of God, but if you remember, it's a stumbling block to Jews and it's foolishness or folly to Gentiles. And I think we don't fully appreciate just why that is. Does anyone here, is anyone here wearing a a cross tonight in any way? Necklace, ring, anything? There's one, okay. And sometimes there's more. There's nothing wrong with that. My point is, we wear crosses. I have crosses on my Bible. They're engraved on here. Some of the rest of you probably do too. Uh, My dad, for years, and I don't know if he still does or not, but for years he had a little small one he carried in his pocket. So every time he would reach in there to get some change, he would feel that, and it would sort of be a nice reminder to him. And some of you have probably seen things like that. Maybe some of you have things like that. See, my point is, we typically think about the cross in our 21st century context where it's a symbol, a Christian symbol, a powerful symbol, and that's important. But beyond that, we don't really give it too much thought. Symbols find their power in the reality that they represent. The cross is a symbol because it represents something in the real world. And I think it's important that we understand what it represents so we can understand that symbolism better. So tonight, we want to try to get out of our 21st century context when we think of the cross and think about the cross, crucifixion, crucify 
in its historical first century context. Now, the origins of crucifixion are lost in the mist of history. It's one of those things that's extremely ancient. The earliest historians, names you've probably heard of, Herodotus, Thucydides, they write about people being executed by being fixed to poles. They use words related to crucifixion, talking about them being uh, fixed to poles or to trees. But the way they talk about it, it's unclear if they're referring to what we would think of with the crucifixion. They could be talking about hanging. They could be talking about impaling. Both of those were also common methods of execution, but very quick methods of execution. People die pretty quickly from being hanged or from being impaled. In contrast, we know that the Romans didn't invent persecution. We know, for example, that uh, the Persians used it. Uh, It was employed in ancient Carthage. But like a lot of other things that other cultures invented and the Romans took over, they perfected the art of crucifixion, if we can refer to it that way. You see, the point is, unlike, say, impaling or hanging, the whole point of crucifixion is that it was not to be a quick death. It was to be slow, painfully, agonizingly long and slow. The idea was for the victim to linger, still able to see, still able to to hear, to think, to speak, to cry out in pain, maybe to cry out in protest, for hours, and even better, if they held on for days at a time. That was the real goal. The first century writer Seneca describes victims this way. He talks about them, quote, wasting away in pain, dying limb by limb, letting out his life drop by drop, fastened to the accursed tree, long sickly, already deformed, swelling with ugly tumors on chest and shoulders and drawing the breath of life amid long, drawn-out agony. It wasn't just physical torture. It was a psychological horror show by design. In a word, it was excruciating. And that's where that word comes from, from the Latin out of crucifixion, literally what that means, giving us an English word. If we think about the process of someone being crucified, we know that Jesus was scourged prior to his crucifixion, and that was more common than not. Someone condemned to death by crucifixion typically would be subject to scourging. The condemned was stripped, They were tied to a post or to a pillar. And if we think about being whipped, now we're familiar with the Jewish law because we read about this several times, that they were limited to 40 lashes. Paul talks about receiving the 40 stripes, save one. They'd always give 39 just in case they'd miscounted at some point. But the Romans didn't have any sort of legal limit when it came to delivering blows. They were only limited by how many they felt like were enough 
It was at the total discretion of the one administering it. And the instrument they used was the flagrum or the flagellum. That's the diminutive term for it. And there you can see an illustration of one. It was composed of leather thongs fixed to a wooden handle. We probably would refer to this as a, a cat of nine tails. Uh, that's a term that was common at one point in the English world. But as you can see in this illustration, this was also extremely common for bits of bone or shards of uh, metal or sometimes glass, things like that, to be fixed there in these leather straps. When these were swung, that would bite and tear huge hunks out of a person's flesh. So the victim tied up here to the post would be whipped over and over and over again to the point that those implements, the lead balls, the spikes, the bone shards, they would rip huge hunks out of the flesh. The veins, the muscles would be exposed. In some cases, we have accounts that the internal organs would be exposed because the skin was torn so deeply here. And as you might imagine, it wasn't uncommon for someone to die simply from the scourging. Although that wasn't ideal because we want them to hang on. So someone who was really skilled at this wouldn't go quite that far. He would stop just at the point before death. It's been speculated by some scholars that Jesus' scourging was perhaps particularly severe because normally this would have been administered by officials called lictors. These were sort of assistants to the magistrate. This was one of the jobs that they had, but Pilate didn't have any lictors at his disposal, so he got regular soldiers to do it. Now, they would have been capable of it, of course, but they would have been particularly brutal in the way that they administered it. At any rate, after suffering this intense physical punishment from the scourging, and that's to say nothing in Jesus' case from the, the crown of thorns we know about that was jammed down on top of his head, he had to go to Golgotha, as Brooks read a few moments ago, the hill outside the city, the place of execution. Even preparing for that must have been agonizing because you remember that crown of thorns that was thrust on his head was all in the context of mocking him, making fun of him as a would-be king. And part of that process was putting a full royal robe around him there, and they you know, bowed down to him as if he were a king. So imagine then all of these lacerations across his back, this robe being put upon him. And now at this point, those wounds had probably started to, to clot, perhaps even to scab over already. And then that robe is ripped off of him again, reopening all of those wounds. His own clothes are placed back up on him to be led out to that place of the skull. Jesus then was made to carry his cross to Calvary. That, too, was relatively common. There were a lot of shapes of crosses in the Roman world. You know, we're used to just seeing the, the typical one with the cross piece just a little way down from the top. Uh, we know that in some cases, they actually just used a, a vertical pole. Uh, the most common type was a T-shaped cross with that cross beam at the very top, or like the one we're used to seeing with that cross piece just a little way down from the top. 
Those are the most common types. We don't know exactly what type, what shape of cross Jesus was crucified on. Uh, but it certainly was one of those with the cross piece, either the T-shaped or, or that one they were most familiar with. Carrying the cross suggests that it was one of those two types. Because when we think of carrying the cross, what we're used to seeing in movies or in pictures is someone, you know, Jesus, with the whole cross on his back. But that's not the way it actually worked. Uh, an entire cross, both pieces there, would have weighed about 300 pounds. Even though they're torturing someone, that's physically impossible. But the cross beam would have only weighed about 100 pounds. And that's what someone was made to carry there across their back. Specific places, like Calvary, were reserved in cities specifically for executions, for crucifixions, and they would have had vertical posts permanently mounted out there so that what a victim would carry would just be that cross beam out there. Uh, they would be then attached to that, and the cross beam would be attached to that vertical post that was already there. People could be fixed to crosses with ropes, but the most common way of attaching them to them was with nails. Now, as we know, that's what was used with Jesus. The nails, Scripture tells us, were placed through his hands and through his feet. Most of the time, you'll read that they probably weren't actually through his nails, but through his wrists, because the word for hand can really refer to anything from the elbow on down in the forearm in Greek. And if the nails went through the hands, well then in supporting his body weight, they likely would have just ripped straight through. So more than likely they were here uh, through the upper arm, through the wrist. But at any rate, even with them through the wrist, the lower body held the bulk of your weight anyway. When we see depictions of Jesus, we're used to seeing him with one foot on top of the other. But this is interesting, and this is grisly, but I think we need to see this. This is the one fragment archaeologists have ever discovered of someone who was a victim of crucifixion. Of course, we have untold numbers of victims of crucifixion, but the one surefire piece of evidence that's been passed down to us, if you don't know what you're looking at, that's a foot, and the nail is going through the heel on the side. So in other words, what we're used to seeing are the two feet on top of each other and a nail placed straight down through it, uh, down into the cross this way. It's hard to describe with my hands, but you get the idea. But what we have here is if you can imagine the cross like this, the two feet, well, like this, the foot on the side and the nail driven perpendicular to the cross beam like that through both heels. The reason we haven't found more evidence of things like this is because in many cases, people would take the nails afterwards as sort of magical amulets. They didn't take the nail from this fellow because it hit a knot in the wood or something like that and it bent the end of it so that they couldn't get it back out. This fellow named uh, Johannan who they found at an ossuary in 1968. Otherwise we don't know anything else about him. But it gives you an idea of how people were attached to the cross. Nails hammered into their heels. 
So now hanging on the cross, the victim suffered every kind of physical agony that you could possibly imagine. That unnatural pose with the crossbeam made every movement excruciatingly painful. The lacerated veins, the tendons throbbed incessantly. That position made inhaling extremely difficult because of the hyperextension of the chest muscles and the lungs. And in order to breathe, someone would have to push themselves up with their arms so that they could draw breath in. But you can imagine that before long, that would start to hurt. It would become too heavy. They couldn't carry their weight anymore. And so they would collapse back down until it became too difficult to breathe again. And then they would lift themselves back up and start the process all over, over and over and over again. And by the way, remember that lacerated back, like in Jesus' case, as in most cases, cut to ribbons from the scourge and imagining it, it's not like we're talking about a smoothly sanded board here, that raw back going up again and again and again over the cross, getting splinters and who knows what in the back. The wounds inflamed here by exposure uh, gradually gangrened. The arteries, especially at the head and at the stomach, became swollen. I read that description from Seneca talking about tumors on a person's head and chest. That's what he's referring to there. On top of that, there was dizziness caused by the loss of blood, caused by dehydration, a raging thirst. We see that with Jesus on the cross. He cried out, I thirst. Before long, fever would set in, perhaps tetanus, perhaps sepsis. And then there's the public shame involved in the whole ordeal. Now, when we see depictions of the cross, we're used to seeing Jesus with a, a loincloth or something over him, but that's not actually the case. Victims were stripped naked and they were hung there that way in order to complete their public humiliation. We could have described this in more detail, although I imagine most of us think that this was enough. But you get the point, and that is that this is designed to push the body to its utmost limits, just to the point that a person could physically endure, but not quite so far that it would push you to the point of the blessed relief of unconsciousness. Roman soldiers who were skilled in this, you know, the way they went and gave Jesus a drink, for example, they're trying to keep you conscious, trying to keep you alive, trying to make you suffer as long and as publicly and as painfully as possible. Death came slowly. Scholars have written a great deal about what the typical cause of death was, and it seems like it could have come a number of different ways from that sort of torture. It sometimes came from asphyxiation. We mentioned those breathing issues. Well, over time, the lungs would fill up with fluid, much like someone drowning. It could occur from a cardiac rupture or heart failure from all of this stress. And in fact, 
most scholars seem to think that Jesus died from one of these two or some combination of them, and that accounts for the the fluid, the water, and the blood that came running from his side when he was pierced with the spear to ensure that he was dead. It could come from infection in the wounds. It could come from exposure if you held on long enough just from being out there in the sun and in the elements with nothing to eat or drink day after day after day. But however came it came, it was inevitable and it was horrible. In short, crucifixion is the most terrible, most disgusting, most painful, most awful death that human beings could devise. And that's not just my opinion, looking back from it with hindsight, with our modern sensibilities where we don't see anything like that anymore, thankfully. That was the opinion of ancient writers. Uh, The Roman historian and orator, the Roman orator, I should say, uh, Cicero, the Jewish historian Josephus, Cicero called it, quote, the most cruel and terrifying punishment. Josephus refers to it as the most pitiable of deaths. You can be sure that those two had seen enough crucifixions and enough other horrors out in the world to know exactly what they were talking about. And because it was so terrible, it was reserved for the worst criminals. Two categories in particular were subject to crucifixion rebellious slaves or slaves who committed crimes and rebels in particular when you combine those two slaves who had rebelled they were especially subject to crucifixion Uh, if you know the story if you ever saw the old movie Spartacus that was a slave rebellion a gladiator rebellion well after that was crushed a lot of the gladiators died in battle but then afterward the survivors 6,000 of them were crucified all along the Appian Way back to Rome all along the side there is a, a public sign a symbol and because it was so horrific Roman citizens were exempt from it they couldn't be crucified Cicero again wrote about it this way To bind a Roman citizen is a crime. To flog him is an abomination. Now, think about what we know of Scripture, incidentally. We think about Paul and how much uh, trouble that centurion was in when he bound him and then when they were about to beat him. To bind a Roman citizen is a crime. To flog him is an abomination. To kill him is almost an act of murder. To crucify him is what? There is no fitting word that can possibly describe so horrible a deed. You see, we display crosses almost thoughtlessly, wearing them, having them in our pocket, having them on our Bibles or whatever it may be. But what we need to understand is in the ancient world, where they were intimately familiar with what crucifixion was, this was something that you didn't even speak of in polite society. Cicero again. The very word cross should be far removed not only from the person of a Roman citizen, but from his thoughts, his eyes, and his ears. For it's not only the actual occurrence of these things or the endurance of them, but liability to them, the expectation Indeed, the very mention of them that is unworthy of a Roman citizen and a free man. 
And now, hopefully, we have at least some idea of why the preaching of the cross was such a scandal. Because for Romans, this was unthinkable. This was something that a Roman citizen would never be subject to, something that was not even discussed in polite society. Cicero says, don't even think about it. For Jews, remember, this was a penalty that was primarily uh, paid by those who were rebellious, those who were in subjugation. For the Jews, it was a painful reminder of the fact that they were in subjection to Rome. It's no exaggeration to say that Jesus grew up in a real sense in the shadow of the cross. And I'm not just talking about his impending death on the cross. After the death of Herod the Great, not long after Jesus was born, a tax revolt broke out under the leadership of a fellow named Judas the Galilean. He's actually mentioned by Gamaliel in the book of Acts when they're pondering what to do about the apostles. Uh, and he's the founder of the, the Zealot movement. You've heard of the Zealots. We read about Simon the Zealot in the New Testament. Well, in putting down that rebellion, the Syrian governor, a fellow named Verus, put it down in the best way Romans knew how to do. He executed about 2,000 of the rebels by crucifying them very publicly and visibly. And then on the other hand, not too long after Jesus' death, there was the great Jewish revolt of 66 to 70. The Roman general Titus crucified thousands who knows how many thousands of Jews when they laid siege to the city of Jerusalem? About 500 a day on average. Josephus said that he crucified so many that there were no more crosses for the bodies and no more room for the crosses. In fact, they crucified so many that they ran out of timber there in the immediate vicinity of Jerusalem and they had to go get some elsewhere to bring it in. And this was all done visibly and publicly so that you would know that the Romans were in charge. They were in control. It was designed to say this is what happens to rebels, people who try to go up against Rome's power. This is the threat of what's going to happen to you. Everybody in Galilee, everybody in Judea knew someone that this had happened to. Maybe they had a family member that had fallen afoul of Rome and they'd been crucified for that. So when Jesus tells his followers that they need to pick up a cross and follow him, that's not a metaphor. Everyone would have understood that literally. And for Jews, it was impossible for them to imagine that their Messiah, the one who was supposed to come in and kick out the Romans, could be put to death in this most brutal example of Rome's power. You see, we spent time over the last several weeks thinking about wrestling with the meaning of the cross, and it's a deep and rich subject. It's something that's extremely important, but to really understand it in its historical context, we have to realize that the cross already carried with it a powerful meaning in the ancient world. It carried a social meaning. The Romans are saying, we are superior, you are inferior. It carried a political meaning. Rome is in charge. You, your nation, your people, you don't count for anything. And by extension, it carried a religious or a theological meaning 
because the goddess Roma, Caesar, emperor of Rome, the son of a god, obviously they're more powerful than your god or your gods, or you wouldn't be subject to this sort of faith. And you see, the great truth of the New Testament, the message of the preaching of the cross, is that all of that is turned on its head through submitting to this shameful death. You see what Paul means when he says he became obedient unto death, even death on the cross, this most terrible, horrific death imaginable. By submitting to this shameful death, Jesus somehow wins victory over death itself. He shows that God's kingdom comes not like the Roman Empire through forcing people brutally to submit, but through self-emptying, self-giving, self-denying, sacrificial love. And his resurrection proclaims that he, not Caesar, is the one true king because he's more powerful than anything the Romans can do. But hopefully we see why in historical context that message was foolish to most people because it's outlandish in a way that I don't know that we fully appreciate. What I do want us to think about in light of this message, all we've said about the cross particularly tonight and everything we've talked about over the last few weeks looking at these big ideas, atonement, redemption, etc., two great truths to keep in mind. One is that sin is horrible. Sin is horrible almost beyond our ability to comprehend it. When we think about how horrible the cross was, nothing reveals the horror of sin like the cross. Because if it weren't so horrible, Jesus wouldn't have paid such a horrible penalty. If it weren't so horrible, the crucifixion of Jesus would be, would be a crime for him to be willing to submit to something like that. So when we see the price that was paid for sin, that should cause us to think about our own sin, to feel revulsion at our sin, to turn away from it. But secondly, if sin is horrible beyond our comprehension, God's love is wonderful, also beyond our comprehension. It must be wonderful, wonderful beyond our comprehension, to be willing to submit to that. God could have abandoned us to reap what we've sowed. We've sowed to the wind, let's reap the whirlwind. Get what we deserve. But he loved us even to the point of death, even death on a cross. How can we not be moved by that? How can we not love him in return? And if we love him, we'll keep his commandments. If you're here this evening and haven't loved him as you ought, haven't kept his commandments as you ought, and you need to make changes, it's the Lord's invitation while we stand and while we sing. There's a fountain free, tis for you.